fast, safe, and reliable. Interact e-transfer is one of the best ways to send, request, and receive money. In fact, Canadians used the service to complete 371 million transactions in 2018. That's nearly 11 times the population of Canada. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hi everyone, it's Thursday, March 7th. We're recording the day early because uh, Canada 2020 is launching a major project on Friday called No Second Chances. It's profiling the rise and fall of Canada's 12 female first ministers. Um, also symbolic, we're, we're launching on International Women's Day, March 8th, tomorrow. So we'll have um, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne in, in town, and as well as former Alberta Premier Alison Redford, uh, and uh, we'll be launching it. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, it's um, that's okay, really, that we're, we're recording today because it's felt like, I don't know, three weeks in the span of four days. I've got the regulars here, Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's and David Reevely of the Canadian Press. Hello to you both. Hi there. Hi there. Whew. How are, like, can we breathe? Just All of life, should... to me, every week now feels like that 30 Rock thing. What a week, eh? <laughs> Lemon, it's Wednesday. <laughs> every it's Wednesday. week. So, we're, we're here in a room that it doesn't have windows. We don't have our phones with us. Yeah. I, I think we're safe yes. for a little while <laughs> yeah. until we have to go out again. What is What were you saying yesterday um, about, uh, like, I wonder how people in Washington do it? I, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't understand. Like, it's like yeah. trying to drink from a fire hose. Like, I feel like we've been launched into like an election campaign, all of us, like instantly with no warning. I don't know how people in Washington have been doing this for two years. The only thing is, and I heard um, Katie O'Malley saying this on the national, or maybe on CBC News Network yesterday, was just like, it's been a little like civics course for all of us. Um, For sure. So it's kind of been interesting that way. And we've for once focused more on Canadian news than uh, American news. Um, okay, well, we're going to go through some some things chronologically this week. So let's first address the news that dropped at the beginning of the week uh, on Monday. Prominent Liberal Cabinet Minister and newest appointee to the role of President of the Treasury Board, Jane Philpott, announced her resignation from Cabinet on Monday. So why was that? In her resignation letter, she points to the handling or mishandling of the SNC-Lavalin affair as the core reason for her decision. She states, quote, I have been considering the events that have shaken the federal government in recent weeks, and after serious reflection, I have concluded that I must resign as a member of cabinet. She then goes on to say, the evidence of efforts by politicians and or officials to pressure the former attorney general to intervene in the criminal case involving SNC-Lavalin and the evidence as to the content of those efforts have raised serious concerns for me. So as we know, accusations of inappropriate pressure placed on the AG were first detailed in a Globe and Mail report a few weeks back, which we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. This news comes less than a week, though, after her colleague and we know good friend Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former uh, AG, testified before the Justice Committee um, implicating 11 members in and around the PMO and confirming those allegations in the uh, Globe and Mail report. So this resignation was like shocking news for thunderous. This was this was thunderous for a number of reasons. She's a prominent cabinet minister. This is a um, you know a big file. She's well respected. She's sort of one of the liberal star players. It says a lot. Shannon, you outlined this in one of your many articles this week about um, sort of. <sighs> Why this is unusual for a cabinet minister to resign on the basis of principle? 
Yeah. So, I mean, this was one of those pieces. I think it was like three o'clock in the afternoon when the news broke. So this is one of those pieces we sort of cobbled together as quickly as we could. But as we started kind of banging around ideas in the office, I think we came up with three examples in the last like 20 years. Um, it doesn't happen often that cabinet ministers resign on principle. And then as I started digging into those, it turned out that one or two of the examples we thought had been someone resigning was in fact someone fired, being fired. <laughs> um, or that at least there's been a, a conflict on the record as, the, as is the case with Lucienne Bouchard, where he claims he quit and uh, Mulroney claims he fired him. So who knows? Lost right. in the mists of time. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen often. She was, as you say, a star, almost sounds like almost universally respected, well-liked, thought of as a serious heavy hitter, kind of an obvious when you cast around and go, what is the shape of the Liberal Party post-Trudeau 2.0? She's kind of an obvious person to, to point to as having serious leadership potential. Um, mm. And I think it expanded the blast radius of mm. this issue I think so too. beyond the, uh, the original players who were involved with kind of the core story from the beginning. You know, even Jerry Butt stepping down, he was sort of implicated yeah. directly in the original kind of narrative. This bumped that circle way out. I think so. It had and it, and it started to yeah, affect more than the original crew. You listed something, and I think it's important that the cabinet solidarity, mm-hmm. right? So, so she was quite precise in what she said, much like Jody Wilson-Raybould, and what she said in her resignation letter. What's been kind of <coughs> I found fascinating to see with both of them is they have left no no wiggle room, no no gray area. Like we we sort of, I think we were talking last week about how Jody Wilson-Raybould's a prosecutor and you can tell she's a prosecutor. Mm. Jane Philpott approached this in a kind of prosecutorial manner too, where once they've made these statements, the statements are complete, they're airtight, it's very clear. They're, they're not being euphemistic at all in what their issues are. Um, it's all there that she said, you know, the principle of cabinet um, solidarity is that you stand behind what the government does and I just can't do that anymore, so I'm out. And a lot of people were noting that the two were very, the two women are very close. I mean, mm-hmm. that's no surprise. They've been friends, and they've been made note of that. But I think a, a lot of people were sort of uh, there were comments made that Bill Morneau was sort of, um, uh, you know, indicating that the only reason she left was because it was just standing by her friend. I mean, I don't, I, think, I don't think what he said was quite that strong, but I think uh, he was asked about the departure right. and what it meant. I think where he got into trouble was he he led with that. That was the first element sure. of his answer. Well, we know they're close friends and she's et cetera, et cetera. That's maybe not what you start with, mm. especially mm. when she has laid out in great detail her explicit reasons for leaving the cabinet. Uh, I mean, of course, people are complicated and they do things for a lot of reasons. And it's entirely plausible that Jane Philpott felt the what she believed to be the unjust treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould more keenly yeah. than other cabinet ministers who might generally agree. Or that she was privy to more information. Well, that's right. Also that possible, yeah. Um, but she she laid out that she was quitting because she didn't, because, that she was quitting on principle. Yeah. Because she could not stand behind the government's treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould. And, and she, I think dismissing that implicitly, even if it was just a mistake, right. you know, the, uh, uh, yeah, he came up with a list and put them out in maybe a, a, an infelicitous order. <laughs> I, I think that is what that's what provoked the yeah the response, the response to that. Um, and 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 I think there's a there's an element that, that these are two women, right? That these are two high powered, um, influential, respected women, and there was. Um, a lot of chatter afterwards uh, about, you know, would they be treated different or would the news around this be different if if they were men? Their colleagues in um, the Trudeau cabinet, like 
Christia Freeland came out after, other prominent women, sort of saying like full force, you know, I have support in, in the in the in the government in in Trudeau. He's been uh, an incredible leader, especially as a mother of young children. So there was this element of feminism. How does yeah, how does gender play into this? And can that do we need to be talking about gender? It's, it's a delicate thing. So I wrote two different pieces this week that hinged on gender, but I was trying to be pretty careful and thoughtful in how I did, because I think you don't want to slip into noticing just, hey, it's two girls. Let's talk about what the girls are doing. But there's there's elements that come to bear there. So I, I wrote first before, was it before Jane Philpott resigned? Yes. Or the day. Yeah. I wrote it the morning and then we didn't file it <laughs> because uh, everything exploded. Still in your Basically draft. just like, I wanted to take a look at what academic research tells us about the way women are viewed in positions of leadership. And like, basically they're, they're held to a higher standard. We think of this package of attributes that women have and this package of attributes that we think leaders have. And there's basically like the Venn diagram doesn't cross. It's two mm. separate circles. So I think it's a backdrop. It's an unprovable element. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to be kind of careful and delicate in how you unpack that. But you're right that from the point of view of the optics and the brand of this government, this is a really tricky situation for them because um, Indigenous reconciliation, feminism, like these are central to who this prime minister presented himself to be, to what he built his government around. And now you have just sort of those strings being plucked again and again. And you could see it, I think, in Jerry Butts' testimony yesterday. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead to topic number two. Feel free to tell me to shut her down. In that he was being so careful in his tone, so respectful. He said over and over, I think he even got into quite a tense exchange with someone at one point, maybe Lisa Raitt, who was sort of goading him into trying to call Jody Wilson-Raybould a liar. Mm -hmm. And he he seemed hyper aware of Mm -hmm. the fact that he needed to come in and make his case without impugning her in any way because that's just politically disastrous for them at this point. Yeah. And I, I think it was an exchange with Charlie Angus. Was it? Okay. Oh, yeah. I couldn't remember which there one. were a few along I those. couldn't, yeah. And, and Angus was, the NDP MP was insisting on a binary choice. You know, you are yeah. telling a story, she's telling a different story. Are you calling her a liar? Sure. And so, well, but you're saying that she was lying because, and yeah. I, I think that is, I, 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 Butts was trying very carefully and mm. heard again from the, the prime minister yeah. uh, when he spoke this morning, just before we came in, uh, they have two different versions of substantially the same events. And they, so they are rejecting that binary choice. Yes. But I, I think they're being very careful to do that. I think it's really important for them politically that they reject yeah. that binary choice, that they're yeah. not saying that Jody Wilson-Raybould was wrong or a liar, just that she is honest no. and so yeah. are we. And mm-hmm. this is all terribly unfortunate, yeah. which is, of course, the way they want to cast it. Sure. But yeah. I don't think it's obviously <clears throat> wrong either. Yeah. But I, I do think there's that, going back to the the, the, the fen- feminist angle, I mean, yes, that's true. Like this government has prided itself on being a, a feminist uh, government and a feminine. We have a feminist prime minister, so there is that element, uh, the the women angle, and that's why I think Freeland came out so adamantly that we have a prime minister who's a feminist. He has supported me as a, a mother. He's a family man. Um, this was this was a very strong narrative that was being pulled out. And I think I think I just to amplify something that I think Shannon was saying. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpot were both 
not just symbolic to strong women in the cabinet, but uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's prosecutor, a uh, regional chief in BC for the Assembly of First Nations, mm-hmm. and Jane Philpot is a doctor, worked abroad, uh, you know, had the experience of her daughter dying because she couldn't get her to a hospital quickly enough um, in, I think it was Niger. Uh, they're, and they've, they've done tremendous work outside and before politics. And the fact that Trudeau was able to recruit them to the Liberal Party in 2015 was not just symbolic. It was indicative mm. of the, these these uh, of how apparently these powerful, strong women with strong records saw him. Yeah, that's and now true. They that's have a good left. point. And and in Philpot's case, explicitly said that she doesn't have confidence in. She was she was careful not to say she doesn't have confidence in the government. She used an interesting turn of phrase that she had lost confidence, which is a big deal in politics. But then the end of that sentence is lost confidence in the government's response to right, this right, right, situation. Right. So we are going to be waiting another cap, cabinet shuffle, I think, yes. uh, next week probably is they're, oh, they're reporting Lord. as early as next week. So moving on, but staying on this same story, on Wednesday, the Prime Minister's former top aide, Gerald Butts, as we had mentioned, appeared before the Justice Committee, that same committee, with his account of events, which, as you can imagine, differed from Miss Wilson-Raybould's. He refuted some of the allegations made that there was a distinct motivation dictated by the Prime Minister's office to intervene um, and change the outcome of the SNC-Lavalin case. He clapped back at Miss Wilson-Raybould's statements that the pressure came in the form of, you know, 10 meetings and 10 phone calls from September to December, but said that that doesn't categorize, in his mind, undue pressure. Like, sometimes in, in 10 meetings and about one issue can occur in a single week in that world. Um, what were, there was a lot of takeaways. What were, what were t- for you guys, some of the top, maybe David will start with you, top takeaways from from his testimony? I think the, and we saw it, we, we heard it again from, from Trudeau uh, the, the next day, this morning. There was a sense of contrition. I think that, oh, I, I didn't realize at the time how this was going. And th- that t- talked about the, the erosion of trust uh, that he butts was in significant part responsible for. And s- seeing that, saying that that was how everything really started to go downhill. It <clears throat> does, I, I mean, he he did not call Wilson-Raybould a liar, but he did talk a lot about having a very different interpretation of events and did imply that her interpretation was self-serving. Mm. And of course, his interpretation is self-serving mm. as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which And it does not mean that either of them is is wrong or uh, or, or lying. Because, of course, we all have self-serving interpretations of the things that we've yeah. done. We, we fit, think we're doing things for the right reasons and are certainly able to retrospectively impose those yeah. reasons on them if, if we need to. Um, but the the attempt to just say, oh, this is all a terrible misunderstanding, a terrible, terrible <laughs> misunderstanding, <laughs> and it's all it's all gone wrong. Right. And, ugh, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was yeah. this, like, so there was a few points that he sort of um, – Emphasize. So the second opinion part, the, the need for a second opinion from, and they were looking at Beverly McLaughlin. Um, I think he threw that out sort of as a hypothetical. I know, and then kind by, of like by way of, yeah, then he kind of backed away from it. So on one hand, he's saying these jobs are very important, 9,000 people and their families and these spin-off jobs. And, and he's using that to 
he he said effectively that Jody Wilson Raybould did not have enough time to fully consider yeah, the decision she made. So he walked through the timeline. She finds out on September fourth that the DPP is not going to offer um, a DPA. We get into this uh, alphabet soup of, of acronyms. I know. And then she comes back to the country, and by September sixteenth, she says to or September seventeenth, the Prime Minister and the clerk, "I've made up my mind." back off. And so he says, that's 12 days. How could you say to the Canadian public, we have fully considered every angle of this and case closed. So he's sort of twinning the jobs issue with the idea that they were just trying to get her to keep her mind open to more information. He's saying that we recommended this external legal advice just as a way for her to gather more information. Didn't want to influence her one way or the other, but she just needed to learn more given the gravity of what was at stake here. That was his way. If I'm the minister, I can imagine seeing that as massively patronizing. Yeah. We don't think you really thought this through. Totally. Why not get some outside advice who can really set you right from someone who's a better lawyer, from someone who knows hmm, more than you, the minister, who are also a lawyer. Yeah. Or even beyond that, there's the way she kind of implicitly presented it in her testimony, which was that it was sort of, that was the facade, but really what they wanted was just to twist her arm a bit or 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 just kind of have another kick at the can to basically make her come to the conclusion they wanted her to come to. Or to give her an out. Right, that, exactly. That, she could that say, it was sort well, of a fake I leaf. hadn't really, I guess I had not really considered all the angles. Thank you, retired judge, whoever it ended up being. Exactly. Yeah, her, right. Retired sh- judge. Yes. I thought, I thought <clears throat> it was, I mean, that was an interesting moment, though, when he looked at Lisa Wright, who was the conservative member um, of parliament on the, on the Justice Committee, and sort of said, like, Lisa, we've known each other a long time. I'm going to level with you. I, you know, we grew up in the same area. Can you imagine if... Uh, you know, the government shut down, what was he saying? One of the mines. One of the mines. Right. And and all that the explanation was, we thought about it for 12 days. Yeah. I mean, they clearly knew they had a very delicate line to tread in that Gerald Butts obviously had a case of his own. He wanted to present his own interpretation of events that he felt was very important to get on the record. But given everything that's transpired over the last two or three weeks, and I think sort of the public perceptions of Jody Wilson-Raybould, mm-hmm. it would have been pretty brutal for yeah. them to come in, you know, with their fists up ready to to really kind of be combative about this. I think they realized that would have been a horrific look. Yeah. And so he did have to kind of tread a delicate line in making his case without and he was at pains to say I respect her, we have friendships, we go for dinners. Yeah, that's um, right. I have that over, and over I, I I will not I won't impugn her. I won't, you know, call names. Um it was a tricky kind of line to walk. One more note I want to make. Uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader. Yeah, I love that at the end. Uh, Elizabeth she, May can show her work every time. She <laughs> was. She had a great question, and I think we haven't talked about it enough in this story, is that, you know, and she's like, have you, she, she raised this to, to, to butts, that, you know, you keep making reference to this, some sort of, you know, financial forecast or document or analysis that, that SNC-Lavalin would lose thousands of, up to 9,000 jobs if it went through a criminal uh, proceeding. Is there some sort of proof or evidence of this that you've made your decision on? Yeah. Like, that was a really good... Because if that's what underlies all this, and Butts is telling, that was sort of the starting point they began at here, was these jobs are important, so we really have to carefully consider this. And he didn't really have an answer. And And that's kind of a thing that's sort of central underlying this story that, yeah, that you kind of have to back up and go, okay, but wait a minute, were these 9,000 jobs at yeah. risk? Like if that's the, the underlying political mm-hmm. or public policy, as, as Butts put it, principle here, is that is that real? 
I thought that was good. Um, his tone was, so So Butts' tone was sort of diametrically opposed to the tone spewed out by uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, who was there for a second time and was uh, testified later that afternoon, so yes, uh, Wednesday afternoon, um, alongside Natalie Drouet, who's the uh, who's the deputy justice minister. He came out ready to defend his credibility, which like he clearly felt has been dragged through the mud, and fair enough, I think there was a lot of you know, for someone who's usually behind the scenes, he was made very public and there was a lot of commentary about his how he's partisan and, and whatnot. I, I don't feel like we got a whole lot of, out of those two testimonies later in the afternoon um, from the bureaucrats. I think, I think they, they did plug a couple of holes and they did fill in some details in the timeline. And Wernick did present his response to Wilson Raybould's fairly strong uh, criticism of him as as mm. having been kind of the prime minister's hatchet man on this, and she talked about facing veiled threats that she could lose her job, uh, and those were, in her telling, delivered by Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council, a public servant who is not supposed to be a political hatchet man, and he's it, and he the the job's a difficult one. You're supposed to serve the prime minister, but there are, as with the attorney general, yeah. some <laughs> limits as to where what's expected, uh, limits to what you can do. And so he responded to that saying that he had just conveyed information that he had not been issuing veiled threats, uh, let alone unveiled threats. Uh, there was one, probably the most interesting thing from either of them though. Uh, and I think this bears more investigation is Natalie Drouin, the yeah. top official oh, at the gosh, Ministry of right. Justice, Department of Justice said that the Privy Council office, headed by Wernick, had asked for a legal analysis of the situation early on in September or so, I think. Of the SNC-Lavalin Of the SNC-Lavalin situation. situation. And uh, it had been written and produced, and Jody Wilson-Raybould said, don't send it. And so the PCO never got it. Is this before she said she had made up her? I think line? this is immediately after, this within is, a couple I, of days. Or this something. is yeah, very very shortly afterwards. Yeah. But that this was information. The Department of Justice is kind of the law department for the federal government, and so the Privy Council office, uh, uh, you know, the very top level of the bureaucracy, answering to the Prime Minister in this telling, asked for a legal analysis and didn't get it because the Minister of Justice said don't send it. And we didn't hear that why. That was kind of weird because she think, sort of said it without much... I think she flicked at it in her testimony last week. I mean, certainly there's more crystallized questions about it now that we've heard it mm-hmm. crystallized, frankly. she. I think that was in the context of when she was talking about telling Natalie Drouin, I don't want to have any more conversations about this. I think this was her way... Of, of telling people she worked with in her department, like, I've made my decision. I feel like they keep coming at me like a flock of mosquitoes. I'm not talking about mm. this anymore. So I think, I think if I'm correct, that, that where that kind of maps onto Jody Wilson-Raybould's timeline of events was her basically shutting down the conversation. Right. But I think where um, the prime minister's office and, and Trudeau and Butts are kind of going with it now is that they're sort of painting a picture of her having checked out on them, that she, mm-hmm. again, made up her mind in just 12 days, which they saw as inadequate, and that right. she was just not open to considering anything else or apparently forwarding a report that was requested. And isn't it in the rule book of the DPA, uh, this, this new law, that you continuously sort of reconsider? So that became kind of a central... The facts 
technical point at the hearing yesterday, which is what constitutes new evidence, because I think it was the opposition MPs kept going at Wernick and saying, you keep saying that she should have been open to considering new evidence or maybe to Butts as well. But what was the new evidence? Now, Wernick had a specific answer where he said the stock price tanked and that that showed um, Um, basically financial vulnerability on the part of SNC. So to him, that was a specific concrete thing that brought new information to the table. I think the way opposition MPs have seen it is that the the government kept saying she should be open to new information, but that was sort of just a pretext for them to continue to badger her about it because the opposition MPs are saying, look, there was no new information here. You just wanted her to keep reconsidering until she arrived at the her. point. Yeah, and it it I, and th- th- that part is not wrong. This it, at, we see it in uh, actual plea bargain situations. Mm-hmm. DPAs aren't plea bargains, but they're they're they have a lot of parallels to them. You can plead guilty to charges you were facing. Um, in you know, if you're charged with assault, you can plead guilty in mid-trial. You could you and say, "Oh yeah, okay, mm. this evidence is a lot stronger than I thought," or "I've changed uh, my mind," okay, or yeah. "I have decided I'm now contrite." Whatever it is, you, that can happen at any point, pretty much right up until the moment of a verdict. And the DPA option, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement option, is available in law up until that same point, right up until the conclusion of a trial. So they're not wrong to say that in a formal legal sense, the question remained open uh, and remains open today as we're talking. But at the same time, if the attorney general, who is ultimately responsible for this, says, I I, I don't think there's any grounds here. The director of public prosecutions, one notch down, who's in charge at a technical level, uh, we don't think there's any grounds for this and we're not hearing anything new and we would like you to stop bugging us. Right. Uh, but they have to consider it. Like there's this weird thing about and then we're getting we're getting very sort of philosophical here, but like can the the idea of making your mind up or like yeah. making a decision on something is that what does that look like well, and is you know And that was a distinction I saw um a really interesting contradiction between Wernick's testimony and Butts's that has to do with this. So Butts said, I didn't know she'd made up her mind until I heard her say it at the committee last week. So like, and that was central to his point that although they now realize with regret, obviously she was perceiving things as pressure, they didn't know at the time because they are now saying explicitly, look, she never told us. She never wrote it down. She never raised her voice and she never said to us, you're bugging me. I consider this inappropriate. Back off. So, and Butts said, it's also my understanding that no one at the PMO or PCO knew that either. So he's making the case that as of mid-September, when she says she made up her mind and communicated that to them, they didn't know that. That's not what Wernick said. In his testimony later, he acknowledged, yeah, she told us on September 17th, she'd made up her mind. His distinction was exactly what David's saying. In the law, the question remains Mm -hmm. open. So there's kind of two levels at which we're talking about a mind being made up. There's her as a human being and and a person in the (laughs) workplace saying, I've made up my mind get off my back. And then there's Wernick saying, but in the law, the law. it's an open question until this is all signed, that. sealed, and delivered. You as a public official cannot to, make up yeah. your mind in a, this, in a final sense until the trial is over. This yeah. is this question I'm having. And 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 actually, let's get into, so, because it's addressed in, in the Prime Minister's um, uh, speech as well from this morning. So he addressed, for the first time, openly uh, came forward and addressed the SNC-Lavalin affair, the Prime Minister, this morning in Ottawa. He, to that point, he sort of said he he, he wished that Jody Wilson-Raybould had come to him before this formally and said, and because he said, I'm really open to my cabinet colleagues and also my um, caucus 
coming to me with their issues, and I want to hear them out. So he's he's laying this groundwork for, again for transparency and communication. Um, and he said, I you know I wish she had done that before, and she never did. Um, but he also I thought it was interesting. He started off his speech. Um, with this idea that there was an erosion of trust between the PMO and the Justice Department. And perhaps, you know, he later used the term miscommunication of sorts. Um, what did you guys think of that? I think it was very consistent with what Butts said right. in his testimony the previous day. And I think it is consistent with the known facts. It's not disprovable. Um, you know, that, that we just, we misunderstood this terribly uh, and everything. We know, flipped. Yeah. 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 We got it wrong. We got it wrong. Whoops. And that message I think would have been, if you're thinking about political comm strategy, enormously effective at shutting all of this down if that speech had been made three weeks ago. Because we wouldn't have had this steady drip of extremely kind mm-hmm. of adversarial, so. timeline-based sort of um, narratives competing in the public domain and this sense of like deep resentment and frustration from within, it just would have, it would have been an acknowledgement of like, and, and I also think if you're thinking in terms of people hearing it, the idea that two different, like I find myself continuously fascinated by the human element of this. I do too. The idea that different people can read a conversation differently, that people in a workplace, you know, bring their own history to it or bring their previous frustrations with their boss to something like all of that is enormously kind of relatable, even legitimate. And that's very much the case they're making now. But it's, it's a bit of a difficult moment to make it after they've spent three weeks, as you say, stonewalling, taking a more aggressive approach. And now it has a, a way of looking like damage control, even if it is an authentic response yeah. to this. Because they it, it, came out at first completely refuting, saying this was a false... Rejecting. Re- yeah, allegation. Yeah. Which I guess you could square, again, yep. if they thought, there's nothing wrong here. What on what earth is, is the Globe and Mail about? talking about? And what is she what talking is she about? about? Again, you can you can square those stories if they, if they really didn't get that this was a campaign that seemed inappropriate to her. Like, that's... And that's this something. is pretty much... What they say is yeah. that, and Trudeau personally said that it wasn't until he heard Jody Wilson-Raybould testifying for almost four hours, he didn't really see that the way she saw what appeared to him to be relatively innocent meetings and discussions. And that, he kind of said, I should have. Yes. And well, he should have. Yeah, yeah. He absolutely right. should have. Even right. in, and I mean, I guess to his credit, he says that, but he is, the buck stops with him. Yeah. And anything that goes wrong in that operation, ultimately, he is responsible for both as sort of political executive and as a politician facing re-election. If they screwed this up this badly, it, it's on him by it's definition as the prime minister. He did interestingly say, you know, they're going, they're getting, they're going to seek advice from external experts about the dual role of the minister of justice and the attorney general which I thought was interesting, and sort of then more broader operating policies across cabinet when it relates to judicial issues. I don't really know what that, I mean, maybe just like communications uh, policies, but that dual role, because uh, we, we've talked about it before, but the, of the Minister of Justice, the Attorney General, and the hard sort of balance between wearing those two hats that I think is yeah, it's it's a it's a situation that's ripe for conflict and tension, and it's kind of amazing that it hasn't happened before. Uh, and in this case, the first time that deferred prosecution agreements really come up in a big way. <laughs> uh, so, if you're going to put those kinds of considerations in the hands of the attorney general as a legal official and 
minister of justice as a political official and expect the same person to fulfill both functions at the same time. It's, I mean, it's obviously a, it's obviously a problem. Yeah. Not necessarily an insurmountable problem, but you can, I mean, and I don't think anyone would set that up on purpose. Yeah. Um, Okay, to summarize all of this, as I know it's it's sort of it's taken a lot of our time. So here. much. There's so much, and hopefully we've kind of lined it out more clearly in a chronological order. But do we think that this is going to matter to Canadians more so now, maybe with the resignation of, of Jane Philpott? Uh, do, is it going to go away in a couple weeks, and we're just it's just going to be a friggin' campaign line and somebody in Shears talking points, or is this going to stay around? What what is what are we taking from all of this? Oh. I'm sorry to punt on this. I don't have a crystal ball. I, what I would say is, I think maybe we will know in the next week or two which way this is going to go, whether it's going to finally have been dealt with and kind of had a lid put on it with this conciliatory statement offered, I would argue, belatedly, or whether it's just going to keep going. It it seems to me, I, and I'm terrible at getting a read of like normal human beings who don't spend all of their <laughs> life on Twitter and watching Newsnet. Um, I think that this story turns on so many tiny little subtleties and like technicalities. And I don't mean to be patronizing. I just think people have busy lives. Mm. And and I think maybe what the like the broad takeaway of this will be kind of depends on where you're coming from. Like if you mm-hmm. think this is an arrogant lot who feel entitled, um, this just kind of is more noise to add to that. Um I don't know. It does. It certainly adds. It, it certainly paints a picture of a government in crisis, right? All of these resignations, even if you're you're someone who's not paying any attention to the little mechanics of it, it it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. It's like people jumping off a ship. Um, but it it's. I mean, we're still so far out from the election. I, I honestly, yeah. I'm so sorry to be like just no, no, weak need about this. I just do don't know. I, I think we've seen a couple of polls. Uh, and yeah, that's I mean, true. This you're is right. still this right. is still going on. So as you say, we'll see yeah. what things are in a couple of yeah, weeks. I've seen but polls, yeah. there have been a couple of polls. Uh, Ipsos had one uh and i think ecos is the other one paletto um, and and um yeah put one out showing that it's done some harm to liberal standing uh ipsos actually had the conservatives well out in front of the of the liberals um and you i'd want to see a bunch more and i'd want more time to go by before concluding that this is hurt but because of the way it goes to the heart of who justin trudeau is i mean a lot of his his appeal, his argument is that he is a good, decent, nice person who cares about people and is nice to be around. And that is not the Justin Trudeau we have heard about in the last few weeks. And he has lost two powerful cabinet ministers who are, as we were saying earlier, both not just symbolic, uh, but that was a a part of it. And they're no longer, Mm -hmm. you know, validating him in that regard. I think one thing that could, could conceivably happen is one or both of them might return to cabinet. Oh, and that would change that's true. things. Oh my God. Or do there they are stay more twists to come. in caucus? And do whether they stay in the Liberal caucus, <laughs> I think, is a very... Oh, my God. That, that's probably a more realistic question, but do they stay in the caucus? Do, do they get kicked out of the caucus? What do they say over yeah, the next those will while? be the, those so This be is the, all still very much going on. Yeah. And there's also just the electoral math, right? Like, if our ultimate question is what happens in October... With the NDP appearing to be in a highly weakened state, you got to think the Liberals are vacuuming up a ton of voters left of center. You have Maxime Bernier's whose mm. party may or may not be a real factor, but it's there, you know, at least maybe not splitting the left, but shaving off a little sliver. So I think the electoral math still favors the Liberals to return to power right, in right, some right. Where, where means, however this lands with the public. 
Okay, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this third one, but it is interesting. Um, Google is making moves to ban political, in, in, in the spirit of transparency, uh, Google is, is making moves to ban political advertising in the upcoming election period because it feels the new rules around ads will be too difficult to comply with. So it's um, they're referring to Bill C-76, legislation outlining ad, um, ad details and other elect- electoral uh, transparency transparency details um, about this specifically though is about what companies can and can't do what they can publish etc so um, this passed this bill passed in, in December I want to say and it requires that publishing um, a component of it requires that publishing platforms like Facebook Google or Twitter have a registry of sorts um, that uh, of all political and partisan ads that directly or that they directly or indirectly publish. So Google said they're tapping out on this. Um, so this was an attempt to, the government's attempt with Bill, Bill C-76 was an attempt to sort of create some more regulations around political advertising and, and as one component. They probably didn't think it would go in this direction. That the company would just say, okay, well, we're not doing it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And Google's argument is is that they're, I mean, they're more a broker of ads. That's how they make their money. And their process is so quick and so opaque even to them that, that you know, they, they put ad space up for auction and somebody buys it and it, an ad gets served up on a search page in almost instantaneously that, that they can't possibly track all these things because it's, it's all automated. It's a fair point. It, yeah, I mean, if we take them at their word, and actually on this I do because it's their business, they yeah. say they can't possibly keep keep the kind of records that the government requires them to keep. So they're just not going to take political ads. One question I have is how they're going to tell what's a political ad. Well, this exactly. is my question yeah. because that's yeah. what Google mentions, right? Is like it's a pretty broad definition of what a political ad is. Yeah, and I mean we've seen. I think it's maybe a little more obvious with uh, with Facebook, but the same sort of thing can apply to ads that Google serves up. You know the. There are attempts to gather kind of demographic information. You know, you join a group that says it's about Canadian patriotism and over time the content on it starts drifting in one political direction or another. And the same sort of thing can happen with targeted Google ads. You know, they have a profile of you. They know who you are even if they don't know you by name. They can serve stuff up to you. So what are advertisers getting out of it? And are they just – it's one thing to say vote. Liberal, vote conservative, vote green. It's something else to try to push your mind in one direction or another. If they see somebody Googling climate change, well, are they going to serve up ads that are pro-liberal climate change policy or anti-carbon taxes or what? I mean, that's obviously a political ad, but it's not partisan. It's not for a particular party. The consequences of this could be jail time, like literally, you know, criminal. Conceivably. Conceivably. So I don't blame companies after what's gone on this past, or I guess that was a couple years ago now. (laughs) Um, But with the 2016, you know, U.S. election, given the the consequences of what's happened there with um, Cambridge Analytica and everything, I mean, I don't blame companies for being hyper cautious about this issue. Um, I guess this means, though, too, that Google, on the other side of it, won't be collecting as much data about the voters. That's not clear to me because I think they... And they did I, in in the stories. They were very clear to say this is not a negotiating tactic. So, which is always yeah, sort of an interesting done. preemptive strike. Like, like we're not doing this to make you change your minds. 
you could take that at face value or you could take that as please change your minds. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't, it's not clear to me if, if that, if that is any component of it, that they won't be um, collecting as much data or if it's just that they're not serving these up, but, but you're right. Like where are they going to draw that line? And that seems to me to map onto exactly what this election seems destined to be, which is I, I'm feeling increasing like every political issue in Canada is a proxy for something else. Yeah. Like climate change is not just climate change. It's like where you slot in on a variety of other issues. And, and so yeah. you could see how with ads, if it's not nakedly partisan for this political party or candidate, it still might absolutely kind of hit those notes and effectively be a political ad. So how how are they going to decide that and draw that line? Is Facebook and Twitter, they they have said that? They have their own sort of proprietary platforms. Like my understanding is that Google, it, I think Google is responsible for 48% of online advertising oh, geez. across the yeah, internet because wow. it's like a, they're like a portal. They're where, a broker. Where, but the, but the, the mechanism of it, like you were talking about, it blows my mind that if you visit a web page, like if you click on whatever, within, I think it's two tenths of yeah. a second, it reads your demographic profile. It auctions the the space to obviously all of this is automated to a bunch of advertising purchasers somebody wins the auction and then it barfs up an ad and up it pops by the time the page has loaded for you that is mind-blowing and, and that, that on any given page i mean how many google ads are yeah. there that that's, that can happen multiple times in two tenths of a second uh and in this situation the advertiser doesn't necessarily know where the ads are going Google knows who the advertiser is and where the ad is going, but this is happening, you know, a billion times in the course of just this conversation. So they don't have the capacity to track every single one. And the company or whoever it is who has the web page that has the Google ads on it doesn't know who the advertisers are. It's so there's many layers of opacity yeah. that it sounds like this bill was designed to kind right. of penetrate. But my question was also the registry idea is interesting, but then yeah. what do you do with that information? Yeah. I guess it's just it's leaving a paper trail if something it does. It, it's kind of making right. it all transparent, like where these things came from. But it seemed like an interesting data source. But what are we to do with that information? Well, I think it's aimed. Some of it's some of it's after the fact. It's aimed, I think, at some of what we saw with Facebook, particularly in the last U.S. federal elections. You were saying, Shannon. Uh, uh, Sarah, um, they realized afterwards, oh, wait, look at all these ads that were taken out using Bitcoin originating in <laughs> Slovakia. But yeah. look, there are patterns that you can extract, mm, yeah. you know, if not in real time afterwards. In real time, it's more useful. But if you can see them afterwards, then at least people will know that they can be caught yeah. later and it's, maybe it's, won't do it. It's a paper trail, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Um, okay. That's it for us today. Uh, hope this was helpful. It was very helpful for me. We'll have a lot more to say as well uh, next week, and we will be back on Friday, uh, usual time slot. Twitter handles, please. At David Reevely, that's me. And I am at S Proudfoot. I realize I've been giving you the wrong handle this entire time. Oh. <laughs> it was my Instagram handle. Oh. I'm actually at Turnbull Sarah. We'll see you next time. Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.